Hello, I'm Neil Aitchison and welcome to Warwick Podcasts. Developments in neuroscience mean that there could soon be a range of brain-improving drugs helping us to improve our memory or concentration. But is that something we want? Ahead of a public lecture at Warwick on the subject, I spoke to one of the world's leading neuroscientists, Professor Gary Lynch from the University of California, Irvine. He's a co-inventor of a class of drugs that improve brain function, cognitive enhancers, called ampokines. Their use could become widespread. Gavin Lynch, perhaps we can first of all kick off by uh, uh, discussing where we are in terms of isolating memory and understanding how it works. Hmm. Well, the big advance over the last several years has been in the area of understanding the chemical mechanism that actually lays down memory. This can be seen as one of the serious triumphs of neurobiology over the last decade, last two decades. But we do seem to have approached a point now where we can say what goes on in your brain as you're encoding what you're listening to right now, what is chemically changing in your brain, such that that information is put in there quickly and left in there for a very, very long time. That part we seem to be getting straight. So with that now comes the question, if we know how it's happening, we think now we can find out where it's happening, and also we think that we can find ways of making it happen better. I mean, you've been researching this field for 30 or more years. So to, to explain a little bit more of the, the science behind that, how have we been able to, to do that then or, or nearly get to that, to that point? Well, some more than 30 years ago, there was a discovery made by uh, uh, scientist Tim Bliss from the MRC, and he discovered a process in the hippocampus, a phenomenon, if you will, where he was able to show that the connections between the neurons were able to change quickly and for very, very long periods of time. From that seminal discovery came the increasing evidence that this physiological process is in fact the very thing that encodes memory. So, of course, this was a giant discovery. Then, thought then and now seen in retrospect, this was an enormous discovery that with certain patterns of activity, the brain connections can quickly change and change indefinitely. Tons of work piled up around that showing that the phenomenon really was closely related to the encoding of everyday commonplace forms of memory. Now, once we had seen the thing in the brain, massive worldwide effort made to find out what was the chemical event that did it. And what I'm suggesting is that I think we are now almost at the point of a standard model of that and almost of a consensus. So that's the big discovery. Now, the actual mechanisms of how that happens, how the little connections change their strength and all that takes us into hundreds and hundreds of proteins and channels and biophysics and tons of things that are fun for neuroscientists but maybe aren't all that fascinating to the outside world. And maybe an obvious question, but explain the, uh, the importance of, uh, of that progression then, that we now have a means of tracking memory. Right. Well, it's, it is as in all biology, and in fact as in all science, understanding leads to manipulation. So now we have these hundreds and hundreds of proteins and these fascinating receptors and channels. You need to look at that picture and say to yourself, which would be the easiest piece to manipulate, to change, to enhance the process? 
And we, that is to say my group and others, set out just to do exactly that thing. And so then we, over a period of several years, invented a class of drugs from the ground up, as it were, that first go in and improve that process by which the synapses change their strength. And once we had that, then we went into animals and then finally people to see if indeed these biologically based substances, these built into the thing, whether they really would improve learning and memory in animals and would they have positive effect in humans. So that's actually, that's the progression. And just explain a little bit more about that then, about cognitive enhancers as they're, they're called. And there seem to be two distinct types of medical applications, which a lot of us might be familiar with, and non-medical applications, which are perhaps the more controversial. Mm-hmm. In the first place, memory disorders, memory problems are much more widespread than people usually understand. Medical impl- indications would be obviously in the steps that precede and go into early stage Alzheimer's as one example, but also in, in various degenerative diseases such as Huntington's disease. Early in the disease progression, there are problems with memory and learning. So these are very two examples, early Alzheimer's, early Huntington's, there's many others of degenerative conditions in the brain where memory shows up as a problem quite early. And these are the immediate targets of these drugs. Cognitively, look at conditions such as attention deficit disorder. So the drugs, for example, are already being tested both in AD, in schizophrenia, in attention deficit disorders. The drugs are being tested there. Those are the medical targets. Those are why the drugs were invented. Now, the non-medical indications read a bit like this. If I can indeed improve the memory encoding process in an early stage Alzheimer's patients, patient, would I be able to do the same thing in a, in a, in a normal person? And that, that non-medical indication, as you refer to it, can actually be split further. Memory problems are part of the human condition. So if uh, there's a be- beautiful studies that have been done showing that memory capacity declines as a function of age, and per- that's part of life. Whether none of us want to admit this, but by the time you're 50, you've lost a significant amount of memory capacity. Well, that is, is that a medical indication or is that a non-medical indication? Or take menopause. One of the major complaints of menopause, postmenopausal women, is memory and cognition difficulties, problems. In some cases, it can be treated with estrogen therapy. In other cases, it can't. Now, if we have drugs that enhance memory, is that a medical or a non-medical indication? Is the ordinary 50-year-old person a medical indication or not? So that's part A, memory problems that are part of the human condition, okay? Now, part B, then, of the non-medical applications would be an 18-year-old college student. Uh, it would be someone who's trying to learn a very a new language, you know, someone who's dealing with an extremely difficult mathematical problem. Here we're looking now where there is no memory problem whatsoever to start with. Would the drugs be able to improve that person's performance? Now the answer to that question is, and this is where the controversy begins, the answer is that in animals these drugs improve memory performance and, and, and in even things begin to approach what we might think of as cognition, say in monkeys. They do improve performance. Young, healthy adults, fully awake, fully alert, the drugs still improve performance. And in the few studies that have been done on young adult people, they do improve memory. And there you see two worlds. A world in which your memory as a normal person is nonetheless degraded from what it was when you were a young adult. 
and then actually the young adults. And what have your sort of studies then in this area sort of d- demonstrated? What can be the um, the advantages, the the, the benefits, the the, uh, the effects of using some of these drugs? Well, okay, if we take monkeys, we can we can train monkeys to a level of performance on something that is actually reasonably difficult, per, not difficult, but a, a, a small challenge for a human, for a normal person. Small challenge, but a complex, obviously, to the limit of what a rhesus monkey can do. You train these animals for months, and now you give them the ampicine, and suddenly they can do what they could not have done before. You have pushed their performance into another realm. And as I mentioned, even in uh, medical students, if you give them ampicines and do questions such as, uh, I give you all these photographs, and I want you to associate this collection of photographs with this particular photographer, under the influence of the ampicine, they do seem to encode more information than they would have otherwise. So those are just experimental results. And uh, just to explore that a little bit, there are sort of other applications in work, for example, of uh, helping people concentrate on doing shift work and uh, applications like that. That's in there. I mean, there was a study done actually here in the UK where they took people and kept them up all night. So they literally just lost one night worth of sleep. Now, then you give them the ampicine and you test their performance. And what you find it is on a number of tests that, again, are cognitively challenging. Those people are doing better, better performance than they would have without the drug, than they do the same people do on placebo. So, yeah, there's that sort of business. Can you work toward degraded performance? But let me emphasize that there's no magic in all of this. I mean, this is not a case of a, of a cure-all or anything of the type. This is all simply a compound that is going into your brain and allowing the neurons in your cerebral cortex to communicate with each other better than they normally do. That's all that's happening. It's making it easier for those neurons to talk to each other, and it's making it easier for those neurons to change the strength in their connections. But that's it. Now, in almost any circumstance that you could imagine where that might be a good thing, then the ampicines are an obvious drug to try. See, so there's nothing it's not on the order of like, this is all seems so magical or such as that. It's actually just plain old boring biology. But it does raise some very uh, complex ethical and indeed sort of medical questions, isn't it? And perhaps the medical questions are easier to answer first in terms mm. of sort of side effects uh, and uh, uh, how these sort of drugs might uh, affect uh, takers medically. Uh, and there are a range of side effects in some of these medications. Yeah. Well, these comp- they, the compounds have the advantage that they don't really have a target outside the brain. So typically when we think about drug side effects, we're usually thinking about effects that are outside the brain. Stimulant drugs, for example, will accelerate the heart, and business of this sort. But these drugs really don't have a target outside the brain. So a whole world of potential side effects are, are removed right there looked at inside the brain people who have taken the compounds and as i say there's there's been a number of clinical studies with these drugs now but if you ask someone who's had the drug have you had a drug or have you had a placebo tablet they can't tell the difference there is no so far that moderate concentrations have been used and i should emphasize that everyone's proceeding very cautiously because this is an entirely new kind of drug if you ask the question what's an ampicine like it isn't like anything There isn't another class of drugs that we can say, well, we know from experience these drugs produce this class of side effect. We don't have any past experience, so everyone's moving slowly. 
But as far as side effects are concerned, there really hasn't been a major class of side effects occur. And again, that's not totally unexpected given what we know the compounds are doing. And what's your view on the, the ethical uh, question? Uh, I suppose with medical applications, there would be a greater sort of degree of justification in terms of uh, tackling a particular illness. Uh, but um, the ethical questions might be against uh, using pills for concentration or better memory that uh, you know, would have lots of people taking lots of medication for leisure activities almost. That, that, that can't be uh, ethically acceptable. Well, what's right. your view of that? It is a question for society. It isn't really a question for science. What we're doing is the tip of the iceberg. Do understand that around the world there are other research laboratories and startup companies and even very large companies developing drugs to enhance cognition and memory. And the successes that we've had are simply encouraging everybody else to do it. I think it's a very good prospect that this will become available. This is not something that when I say it will become available, I mean it will become possible to do it. To me, the largest ethical question is, do we want to live in a world in which people, or is it, would we like a world in which people are encoding and using information in a way that people have never in the past encoded and used information? Will we like such a world? Will we like ourselves in that way? Suppose the drugs make us more cerebral. Suppose they make us more thoughtful. Do we really want to live in a world, does everyone want to live in a world in which you're surrounded by people who are more thoughtful, more whatever. And that's an unknown to me. And I think it's an unknown to everybody. So I don't know how to, I don't know how to address the question. The second part of it that is an ethical issue is if such drugs do become available, it seems grossly unfair that they would only be available to those people that could afford them. I mean, we could have an intellectualocracy here suddenly for those that can afford to take the compounds themselves and give it to whoever they like to give it to and then a large part of the population is excluded so there comes i think another ethical issue i don't have answers to this and it raises the prospect doesn't it of um, allowing humans to go beyond their sort of biological framework if you like that uh, what they were programmed uh, to how they were programmed to think to uh, overcome that and, and counteract that that's rather frightening in some ways i don't know about frightening but that's that is to me the deeper question it's not simply going to be the case that you take these compounds and now you can solve differential equations congratulations and then the drug wears off or that you take these compounds and now you can, where you could not in the past, learn French. It is the case that if you take with these kinds of drugs, if you change the mechanisms of encoding information, you will change the way that memory is organized. And if you change the way that memory is organized, you will change the cognitive structure of that individual. It seems to me that that's, that's an inevitability. Uh, and to me, that's a very, very large social question that, um, Maybe we like ourselves the way we are. Maybe we think, well, gee, we're okay. This is not something we, we should be uh, fooling with. And what's the solution, perhaps, then, to that? Is it, is it a, a regulatory structure uh, to help sort of tame some of the, uh, the adverse effects of, well, of all of this? Well, I don't know about adverse effects, but I think the, that what hopefully the way it proceeds is as follows. We take conditions in which there is a clear-cut memory problem, such as it's impacting on the quality of life. And this happens a lot. There are a lot, there's a large section of people, and we, they take these drugs. 
and then we watch over a period of years and we see what this looks like. Um, beyond that, and one could hope for this, science will begin to understand the process of retrieving, organizing, and using memory. It will begin to understand the process of how cognition and thought arises. Now, that is the, the, the far beyond for neuroscience today. I mean, we talk confidently on the basis of our PET scans and brain scans, but the truth is we don't have a, anything approaching a good idea about what a thought is. Uh, if you were to ask the question, what is consciousness? Well, neuroscientists, we, we have automatic answers that we spin out to this kind of stuff, but the fact is we haven't got a clue. So, but that situation will not remain because using the discoveries that have come from the basic biology, we are now in the process of mapping memories. Once we begin to map memories, once we know where they are, we'll begin to figure out how they're assembled. Once we figure out how they're assembled, we'll start to get an idea of what thought is. As we have a neurobiological idea, it will be possible to say what are the consequences of changing the encoding. Not in a sort of a vague way, but we'll be able to say, well, if we start changing the encoding, then these structures will happen. These changes will happen, and these shifts in cognition will happen. So I would hope that the, there's these two features. We look and see what happens to people who really have memory problems, who really do need treatment, whose life really will benefit from this, and we follow that process over a period of years. At the same time as that, the government, in its, in its uh, infinite wisdom, will see the need to spend more money on neuroscience figuring out what cognition is. And we'll have then, hopefully, some kind of outline of what it means to start changing the encoding process. It's another example, perhaps, of, of science going ahead of the, the, the public debate uh, and perhaps a, a need to, for the public debate to be raised now uh, whilst that science is developing to, to cope with it once the, uh, the, de the development is, is with us. No, that's exactly right. And that's the thing that drags people like myself out of our caves, uh, or out of our laboratories, is that uh, you want to get this discussion going. It's the, 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 it would be very unfortunate indeed if it turns out that we announce that, yes, we have now developed compounds that will help people suffering from the condition, for example, called mild cognitive impairment. This is a condition that precedes Alzheimer's. It's a very bad condition, and we have drugs that help these people. And so the regulatory agencies have said, go ahead and start selling that drug for these people. And then suddenly everyone discovers that the drugs are being used for other by people who don't have memory problems. And suddenly we're all running around frantically trying to say, what should we do about this? Far better that we now look at the, po the likelihood that these compounds are coming. If we don't, that is to say, the people with I'm associated with don't succeed, and there's lots of people doing this now, someone's going to. So it's better we start talking about it now, be ready for that day, which is not that far off, in which there will be drugs, and they will be available, and they will be used for memory disorders, and the possibility of those leaking out into the general public will happen.